Broadway videos this week on Broadway for Sunday, February 19th, 2023. My name is James Marino, and in the broadcast today we have Peter Felicia and Michael Portantier. Peter is a playwright, journalist, and historian with a number of books. His new book, The Book of Broadway Musical Debates, Disputes, and Disagreements, is now available and can be purchased wherever finer books are sold. Peter also has columns at Masterworks Broadway, Broadway Select, and many other places. Hello, Peter. Hi. So, uh, you, uh, getting in your carbs this morning, uh, getting ready for the big workout this afternoon? <laughs> yes, I have had carbs this morning. Yes, indeed. Um, <clears throat> right. Uh, many of you, of course, will be listening to this too late for uh, coming to see me on This February week, but 19th. next week. Yeah. But next week, 26, you're not off the hook yet. Uh, <laughs> you can still come to Theater 555 at 4 o'clock. Absolutely free. And um, here are Pete's Theatrical Adventures, as it's called, um, where I uh, just go through uh, a bunch of index cards pulled at random with titles on them. And I tell stories about those shows that whose titles I pull. So um, I hope to see you there. All right. So uh, we have information on that in the show notes. Uh, if you can't get to it today, you still have one more week to get over to Theater 555 and see Pete's Theatrical Adventures. Also with us is Michael Portantier. Michael is a theater reviewer and essayist. He's the founder and editor of castalbumreviews.com. He is also a theatrical photographer whose photos have appeared in the New York Times and other major publications. You could see his photography work at followspotphoto.com. Hello, Michael. Hello. Hello. <laughs> so... Let's jump right into our review section. Peter, you got over to the Classical Theater of, of Harlem, where they had a production of Twelfth Night. So tell us about this production. Well, last week, uh, faithful listeners will recall that I talked about an Othello that I thought was the best of the 14 productions I've ever seen. And here we go, two weeks in a row, uh, because this Othello, um, it, <laughs> as good as it was, um, <laughs> really... Uh, needs to be mentioned along with Twelfth Night by the Classical Theater of Harlem. This um, was the 20th production of Twelfth Night that I've seen, and uh, this was the best one. Well, first off, we have Carrie Young playing Viola. Now, Carrie Young um, is an actress who's been around for a little bit of a while. We gave her a Theater World Award last year because she made her Broadway debut. Boy, she's done a lot of off-Broadway. And she usually plays really tough, street-wise kids. And as a result of that, she's very right for Viola, who, after all, has to pretend to be Cesario, uh, a man. And of all the people I've ever seen do it, this is the uh, performance that convinced me the most, because she really has that tough, gritty quality. So a wonderful, wonderful actress, and it was a treat to see her. Um, in love with her, at least uh, she thinks she is, is Olivia. 
tremendously funny. Christina Saju is her name. Tremendously funny. Um, you expect, of course, Malvolio to be funny, and Alan Gilmore certainly uh, rises to the occasion. But our old friend, uh, Carson Elrod, is there, Sir Andrew Aguercheek, uh, really, uh, uh, of course, uh, he's a white guy. And the thing is that um, he's one of these white guys who just loves black culture and wants to be a part of it so much and tries very hard to be a part of it. So he's very, very funny in doing that. Uh, simple design, of course, most Shakespearean productions do have simple designs, unit set, but beautiful, wonderful productions, terrific lighting. Um, the rest of the cast is really top-notch, top-notch beyond belief. And of course, wouldn't you know that I went to the penultimate performance, it's closing today, so if you're listening at four o'clock, you've already missed it. But I really am so impressed that Classical Theatre of Harlem, here they are at the Skirball Center, which has close to 900 seats. And my, that place was packed, and my, was that place um, full of people who were so appreciative of what was going on. They had a wonderful time. There's no question that this is a very African-American approach, and certainly um, Twelfth Night, (laughs) there are people who say Twelfth Night was really the first musical because uh, it has six songs in it. (laughs) And, of course, um, there's a lot of soul music in this production, which is really, really quite winning. So, um, and I certainly um, have to say that Frederick Kennedy, uh, who's listed as composer and sound designer, um, did a fine job with that. So I imagine he's the one who did these songs, uh, putting the Shakespearean words to music. So um, anyway, if by any chance there's a revival, by all means, uh, get to it. I know this production had been around before. Maybe it'll be around again. It certainly deserves to be around again. But I'll tell you what happened. Um, I'm on the Drama Desk nominating committee and a lot of my um, colleagues had seen it and uh, were very enthusiastic about it and um, so I really had to fit it in at the last moment but I have a feeling that uh, from the way they spoke about it enthusiastically I'm the most enthusiastic of the bunch of us so um, I I hope that we'll be able to uh, fit in some nominations come, um, come May come what May (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> <laughs> yeah, uh, a surprisingly short run there, uh, just the 16th through the 19th of February. Yeah, it, it, it was a revival, you know, um, and, and fat. Oh, you know, the, uh, it's only 100 minutes. Uh, and the thing is, certain things are omitted, um, no intermission. And what um, really uh, the famous scene where um, they're writing the letter that's going to uh, humiliate Malvolio, completely eliminated. And you didn't miss it at all because, of course, when Malvolio reads the letter, we know uh, that they had written it. And so, um, yeah, I, I think it, it's a very smart move. It was a very clever edit. So I like that quite a bit. All right. Uh so that is Twelfth Night at the Classical Theater of Harlem. We'll have a link to that in the show notes uh, in case you want to go over and check that out and see whatever other stuff Classical Theater of Harlem is doing. Uh, both Michael and Peter got over to the Roundabout Theater Company's uh, Harold and Miriam Steinberg Center for Theater, which is the <laughs> Laura Pell's Theater, and one of them, to see The Wanderers. So, Michael, why don't you get started on The Wanderers? This was one of those plays that to me seemed like maybe it was two different plays smushed together uh, because um, it is set in two different time periods. Uh, it's all of the action occurs in Williamsburg, Brooklyn, or most of the action, uh, but two different time periods. Some of the scenes are in 1973 and some are in 2017. And there are, um, two couples involved uh the the 
2017 couple are Sophie, played by Sarah Cooper, and Abe, played by Eddie K. Thomas. Uh, but then in 1973, we get Shmuley, played by Dave Clasco, and Esther, played by Lucy Fryer. Now, f- for a long time in this play, it's not clear what, if any, relationship there is between the two couples. Uh, but you might be able to guess it, especially if you look at the two different time frames. Um, so I won't say anything more about that. But um, I frankly found the story of the 1973 couple far more interesting because they are Orthodox Jews and they have just gotten married through an arranged marriage. And it seems like at first, it seems like this schmooly guy uh, played by Dave Clasco is a, is a nice person, um, you know, although, but he's, you know, completely enthralled to his religion. Uh, and, but then it, as events uh, proceed, it turns out that he's, too much enthralled to his religion and and uh that creates a, a very very bad situation for his wife um so i i really thought that that story was very compelling and very interesting the current day story is about this fellow abe who's a writer uh and he is a, quite an annoying character i thought uh and he is having problems with his wife uh, for various reasons, but then what happens is he gives a reading somewhere of one of his books, and this movie star named Julia Cheever, uh, played by Katie Holmes, happens to be in the audience. And so then Abe uh, receives a basically a fan letter from this movie star, and then that results in this whole uh, – epistolary relationship between the two of them at any rate uh and so that creates problems with his wife except there's a lot more to that story that i also can't reveal to you because that story has a twist to it um that i found incredibly annoying because it was so completely unbelievable uh so i uh, I really liked half of the play <laughs> and did not like the other half of it. I um I I wonder if I'm correct that it started out as two different one acts and and then they were smushed together. I I don't know if I'll ever be able to find that out. Um the performances were generally excellent. Eddie K. Thomas, um I hadn't seen him on stage in quite some time but he was very good as abe uh as the very annoying abe um and sarah cooper as sophie dave clasco as schmooley and lucy fryer as esther katie holmes as julia cheever i'm afraid um i i did not think she was really up to it i don't i guess i guess i've decided that on the evidence that i've seen she's just really not a very good stage actress uh the good news is she was audible. Uh, I remember when I saw her in All My Sons on Broadway, I, I literally had trouble hearing her, and I fe- felt like she had to shout in order to be heard. But this is a much smaller theater, so she fares better as far as that. And it's not an inept performance in any way, but she I, I felt like her voice is still very thin, and she was using her hands and her arms uh, way too much and with no focus in, in terms of that. Uh, so I, I didn't respond well to that performance. And I 
as I say, I, <laughs> I really enjoyed half of the play and the other half I thought could have been something that I didn't really need to see. So uh, I think that Katie Holmes in the play has overshadowed, uh, in, at least in all the features and reviews and things like that, Sarah Cooper. And uh, mm. uh, for those who don't recall who Sarah Cooper is, uh, I think that this is her stage debut here in New York. But she was the woman who was very famous on Twitter for uh, for mimicking uh, Donald Trump uh, in his speeches on Twitter, and she would play his audio and do her video as though she were limp syncing him. And this is what made her very famous. It's it, very interesting to see her make this leap hmm. uh, uh, to the off Broadway stage. And she's she talked about it at the time that she really wanted uh, to have a a, a performance um, uh, career. But uh, so Katie Holmes and Sarah Cooper and all the rest here over at uh, Laura Pell's doing The Wanderers at Roundabout. Uh, so, Peter, what did you think about The Wanderers? Well, uh, much of what Michael said, uh, the two play um, idea is, is something people, a lot of people are saying. Uh, so it's striking a lot of people that way. And I, I fully understand it. Oh, really? I have not spoken to oh, yeah? anyone else about oh. it or read oh, any a single review so that's oh, how funny yeah uh, yeah. yeah um so uh, this is not meant to make uh, <laughs> say the michael's perception um uh, or banal or anything like that i mean i'm just pointing out the fact that the, there seems to be a lot of agreement on that and um i see it too what really surprised me uh, was the fact that uh, because this was an orthodox couple, it didn't seem like 1973 to me. This is mm-hmm. not a criticism. It's just the idea that they, there was so much in, into old world values, to the point of which this husband didn't even want his wife playing the radio. Um, that uh, Don't do, do that. That's that's verboten. I mean, um, it didn't seem, of course, 1973 is suddenly 50 years ago, uh, a half century ago, but still, I thought we were in 1906. Um, so, but this was a good reminder that indeed, you know, these, these very strict orthodox practices um, have been around for a while and um, at least 50 years ago and, and still to this day, um, they're they're being followed. So the husband is so upset at what the wife is doing, he takes a very radical move. Um, I'm wondering if how much I should say about that radical move because I do want to make a point that I'm surprised that he makes a decision to take two things, I'll be vague, with him as opposed to a different thing that I would expect him to take more than the two things he takes. Again, <laughs> this makes no sense, but if you saw the play, you'd understand. Um, I liked Katie Holmes' style. Um, she is playing this enigmatic um, person. She uh, it's it's an email relationship as opposed to um, letter writing. Mm. And and uh, <laughs> is that a surprise that we're talking about 2017 and people are emailing rather than licking stamps? We well, don't even lick stamps anymore now. That I think. <laughs> but anyway, um, so. Um, she had real style, and she's supposed to play this, you know, exotic movie 
stereotype. And uh, so I thought she really delivered the goods on that. She didn't have much to do. She didn't have much to say because so much of it has to do with the fact that uh, he's reading what she's uh, written to him and he's really smitten with her. And this, of course, puts a big strain on the marriage when you have this fan who is indeed uh, more rich and famous than your wife is. And um, obviously, your wife is going to take this very seriously and be jealous. And um, she has to deal with it. She deals with it in a, in a, in a way that um, may seem contrived, but also can seem very clever. And I found it believable. So I will mm-hmm. say that. It's not, it's, it, it, it was a perfectly acceptable evening for me. Um, I didn't have big issues with it. Um, but it was one of those plays where you go, you, you sit there, you go home, and that's the end of it. Yeah. Uh, as far as the adherence to um, strict practices of, of Judaism, I, I, I could be wrong, but I, I do think that in certain pockets that continues today. Yeah. In, in Brooklyn. And, yeah, I know. You know I, yeah, it, yeah. It's, just, it's just so hard to believe that um, right. people would put themselves through such strenuous things, but we all have our values, and right. that's fine. That's fine. Yeah. This is America. Be what you want to be. All right. So that is the uh, the Wanderers. That is uh, playing over the roundabout. Laura Pels, and we'll have a link to that in the show note. Um, Peter, you got over to Greenwich House Theater to see Leo Reich. Literally, who cares? Do <laughs> you care, Peter? Well, no, but a lot of people did. Um, this is one of those shows that um, certainly appeals to a younger dynamic, and they were crazy for it. They were laughing quite a bit. It's an hour. That's it. One hour. Um, he does something very clever. Um, when when people laugh too much, he says, stop, stop. We don't have time. And I, I think it's kind of funny. to Yeah, see, you're laughing. You know, I think that's kind of funny. He is British, and he reminds me of a British Seth Rudetsky. He talks very, very quickly. Um, you really have to pay close attention to what he's saying because his his lips are moving um, more than a mile a minute. Um, he's definitely uh, broken this, um, the speed barrier on uh, the way he speaks. So there's a lot of fast talk, a lot of talk about political issues, a lot of talk about his own personal life with a bow named Ben where it didn't work out. But um, some very good perceptions about um, uh, Hitler, the Jews, the Holocaust, um, done for comic effect, I'll grant you. It's so funny, you know, that um, there he is with the last name Reich, you know, R-E-I-C-H. Mm-hmm. But anyway, um, it definitely skewed to a young audience who had a hell of a time. And um, I think if you're um, a millennial, uh, you might enjoy this for at least a millennial uh, it seemed to me that way from the way the people were just roaring and, um, you know, clapping at the end of jokes and all, all that, which is the greatest compliment you can give a joke. So, um, so I would recommend it to, uh, to a certain audience. Okay. So if you feel that uh, perhaps you are in this audience, we'll have a link to <laughs> Leo Reich, literally who cares in the show notes. And you can check that out. Uh, Michael, you got over to the Argyle Theater on Long Island to see their production of West Side Stories. Tell us about it. I really enjoyed it. I, and, and the best news is that um, I've been seeing shows there for quite some time, although obviously not since the pandemic, uh, because they just reopened uh, again, uh, not long ago. Uh, this is the first one that I've been back to see. And the shows that I saw before that, all of them were excellent. Uh, Spring Awakening, there was a cabaret, several other shows. Um, but it seemed like the theater, which is still quite new, 
uh, was struggling to find an audience. And uh, so, therefore, I was thrilled that West Side Story was absolutely packed when I uh, attended um, last week. Uh, it was it was it really did my heart good and uh i i just um uh, actually ran into michael cassara uh who is the casting director for the theater uh we ran into him at intermission and and we were talking about the fact that it was so packed and he said well you know the people have different theories as to and it could be a combination of reasons but he thought it was the titles um because west side story um i'm I'm so happy to say apparently still draws, uh, you know, there was that interesting situation where the new film version uh, by mm. Steven Spielberg uh, got rave reviews across the board and did not do well at the yeah, box office. Yeah, yeah. Uh, although we were still emerging from the pandemic. And so that could have been a reason for that. Anyway, um, uh, on the basis of this, there's still an audience, a big, big audience for the beloved West Side Story. Uh, and it was um, a fine production overall, directed by Evan Pappas and Todd L. Underwood, who is also the choreographer. So they're created as co-directors and Todd L. Underwood as the choreographer. Um, to The two leads were uh, two of the best aspects of the production, Tony was played by Wes Williams and Maria by Sabino Colazzo. And while they um, maybe didn't have the most beautiful voices I've ever heard in the roles, and perhaps even were not the best actors in the roles, uh, they, they were excellent in, in both of those regards. And also, I would say they, they were the most credible couple overall, just in terms of how they looked, how they seemed to fit together, and also the fact that they both appear to be teenagers, even though I imagine they they really aren't. Um, so it was it was great to be there. Um, there were some couple of negative aspects to the production. For some reason, um, they only had four jets, for example, and and four sharks. Uh, uh, so that seemed a little underpopulated in that respect because th there's so many other characters in it. I guess they, you know, they, their budgetary limits um, were responsible for that. And then also, similarly, the orchestra was too small for the score. And also, I, I would, to be honest, not really quite up to it. Uh, there was uh, there were synthesized strings, it seemed to me, and and just it was not that great as far as the orchestra, but. Uh, but overall, it was a very solid production, partly because of the leads. And I was very glad that I went, uh, made the trip to Babylon, <laughs> uh, which is a very easy trip, only uh, exactly about an hour um, from Penn Station on Lo the Long Island Railroad to uh, to Babylon. And then the theater is about a 10, 12 minute walk from the train station. Very easy to find. All right, so that's uh, West Side Story at the Argyle Theater in Babylon. We'll have a link to that in the show notes. Peter, you went over to Rattlesticks Playwrights Theater to see a play called Armani. So tell mm -hmm. us about this. 
Yeah, A-M-A-N-I, Amani. That's the name of the title character. This is uh, one of those wonderful surprises that happen from time to time. The Rattlesticks is a very small venue. It's on Waverly Place. Now, Waverly Place is a funny street. It, it splits and goes in different directions. This is the one closest to 7th Avenue, not 6th. So uh, be apprised of that if you care to go. And I think you should because um, not only is is the play by A.K. Payne very, very powerful, but it is beautifully, beautifully, beautifully directed and played by a sterling cast. So first off, Josiah Davis is indeed the director, and he has certainly elicited magnificent performances, especially from the young actress playing Amani. Denise Manning is her name a galvanizing performance i am telling you riveting playing a young girl who has a father magnificently played by Mar- uh, mars m-a-r-s um the father um has this fantasy of building a rocket ship to the moon and when she's a little girl she believes he's going to do it you know because when you're a little kid you believe your parents it's like that wonderful lyric in mean girls that nell benjamin wrote your kid will adore you for years and then she'll turn three you know so um <laughs> that's the type of thing that's going on here i mean she believes in her father and of course as time goes on she doesn't believe in her father and as time goes on her father gets into a, a terrible situation and winds up in prison and the scene between them when she goes to visit him in prison is so tear-inducing and so wonderful um but their relationship i mean you you would swear that this is a loving father and daughter relationship uh, really denise manning and mars rucker i gotta say their names again because they are so wonderfully tender in the scenes they have together we should all have relationships like this with our parents i mean it's it's that great other people come into um their lives of course um <clears throat> There will be um, certainly uh, boyfriends that show up. Um, Omari K. Chancellor plays those guys. And very quick scenes. Um, We're in a um, cockpit theater situation. I don't know if you know what that means. That means like the football field, you know, seats on one side, field seats on the other side. That's the way um, Rattlestick is configured at the moment. And... um, So the boyfriend goes from one corner to the other, to the other, to the other, and he has to play four different guys. And he really makes such a wonderful adjustment in playing four completely different type of men who are are out for um, Amani's hand. So um, will will Amani eventually find happiness? I mean, given the fact that um, also her mother um, was killed when she was uh, just a kid. And so she's had a tough time of it. Will she ever find any happiness? I'm happy to say that she does, but I'll tell you, the audience certainly was happy at seeing Denise Banning's breakthrough performance. I mean, it's like, Everybody deserves an A+, but Denise Manning deserves an A++. A magnificent, magnificent show, and I can't be more happy to recommend it because this is something that's off the beaten track. I mean, 224 Waverly Place is not a place where many people go that often to see shows. They should now. Great. So that's Amani at Rattlestick. It's a co-production with the National Black Theater. It's playing through March 5th. We'll have a link to that in the show notes. Uh, Michael, you uh, visited Casa Clara on mm-hmm. uh, 
18 East 25th that Peter talked about their Othello last week, uh, and you went to go see it, so tell us about this. Yeah, I did not love it as much as Peter, only because there were one or two uh, performances that I thought were just really not up to snuff. But in other respects, I certainly understand why he loved the production so much, because it was very, very brilliantly staged in this former foundry um and uh, you know you, you sit there uh it's uh much much as in the same playing configuration that peter just described for the other show where most of the audience is on either side of the playing space and then there was another um section of seats in the in the back looking at it from the side i guess you would say uh but very, very intimate. I mean, at, at some points, the actors were just a few inches away from you. And, uh, you know, it's a whole different experience when, to, when you experience any play or musical in, in that kind of intimate situation. Uh, so I was glad that they decided to do it there. And uh, I think that was very creative and the costuming was was impressive considering what their their budgets must have been and uh there was very a lot to like about the performance including uh some of the some of the leads uh particularly i have to single out connor andrew hall as iago whom i know that uh, peter liked him very much as well he uh, interestingly at first i i wasn't sure if i was going to respond to his performance because it's a very different look and uh style i guess in which the the characters played very contemporary uh he came on looking like uh, my first thought was he looked like a character from the movie deliverance uh and i thought hmm i <laughs> you know but uh he really really won me over his acting and his uh, understanding of the text and the subtext and how to project the evil of the character, you know, while also seeming um, to be guileless, uh, you know, that so that in order that Othello would believe him, his lies. He, he was excellent at all of that. And I, and I really enjoyed it. Um, this is one of two shows that I saw this week that were, I enjoyed the shows overall, but I was um, quite taken aback by the, notes from the director uh in this case it, it seems what happened here they're, they're not being completely um open about it but it seems that this production was conceived by the artistic director of the new place players that's the name of the troupe and his name is craig bacon but it seems like he then stepped aside um in order for this w woman named mckenna mazenheimer who had been the assistant director to take over. And there's a whole uh, director's note about that, which says, among other things, let's see, a question often asked in the theater is, why this show, why now? As someone invested in telling stories that Black people can find themselves in, I can't say I have a clear answer for this. I don't know why Black people should continue to see our traumas played out on stage, but these are the stories that continue to be chosen, produced, and uplifted. So why this show? Because it was the one chosen. Why now? 
because white people need to admit that their cultural traditions remain unchanged and they are the worse for it. For Black people who see this show, please remember that our cultural traditions also remain unchanged, and we are the better for it. Now, that's a lot to unpack as far as I'm concerned. Uh, First of all, it sounds like she's saying the only reason to do Othello now is because it had already been chosen. Uh, So I don't don't know what that means. And then the other thing... um, White people need to admit that their cultural traditions remain unchanged. What exactly does that mean? I mean, I am white, but I'm an Italian-American. Is Shakespeare any more my tradition or Tennessee Williams any more or less my tradition than, you know, a raisin in the sun or a a musical uh, written by black people? I, I, I don't. It just sounds like such an incredible generalization and actually like a lot of gobbledygook, to be honest. So I did not respond well to that, uh, this, this director's note, to, to put it mildly. And I, I wonder what the, uh, the, what the backstage drama was in, involved in, in the, the uh, assistant director taking over the production. But uh, as far as the actual direction, I thought it was fine. And the blocking and and the work with the actors, uh, except for that one actor that I mentioned that I really did not like. Uh, but uh, I, you know, I I'll, we'll get to the other director's note in the other show <laughs> later. Uh-huh. I I I, uh, I I you know some people use these things as an opportunity to just blather, and I uh, and sometimes it can be very annoying as far as I'm concerned. All right, so that's uh, Othello, the new place, Players. Uh, the Casa Clara is the venue on 18 East 25th. It's through February 25th. We'll have a link to that in the show notes. Uh, Michael, you also saw the uh, production of Town and Manhattan School of Music. Uh, so tell us about this production. Yeah, I was so glad I went. Uh, um, uh, some friends of mine have been attending shows there for quite some time and and they told me that they were always good so i i went uh with a friend and it was a very very good production uh with an excellent cast uh bobby strong was this fellow with a really interesting name piat p-i-a-t-t and his last name is Pund, P-U-N-D, i guess that's how you say it hope cladwell megan sheridan allman uh, Officer Lockstock, uh, this incredible guy named Cody Howard, this tall, strapping, really, really good-looking guy. He reminded me of a taller Matt Bogart, um, uh, and a different, very different interpretation of Officer Lockstock. Uh, more as a, almost like a storm. He was almost in riot gear and with gl- those glasses, those those thin uh, strips of of, of sunglasses. Uh, so he came off as very, very different looks wise, but he also his his comic ability was quite well well honed, and that really that really made all the difference in the world. Um, it, it, it's so important for that for that role. Uh, so he was a great team with little Sally, played by Alicia Jeter, and the whole thing was very well directed um, uh, by. Uh, somebody named Banji 
Abori Sade, who directed and choreographed. And here, uh, I'm happy to say um, there was a very, very intelligent director's note, uh, <laughs> which uh, uh, I'm sorry, just give me a second here. Yeah, this is worth um, this is worth reading. I think. What is your in town? Your in town isn't a real place per se, but what if it was? What if your in town was Atlanta, Los Angeles, Seattle, or even our very own New York City? Your in town is a representation of where our society might go if we do not take the necessary precautions to protect our planet and its resources. We have set this production in New York City in 2070, exploring ideas of media, surveillance, and the shutdown of our modern tech world, resulting in e-waste. It really worked brilliantly that way, and I'm sure that's not exactly what the authors had in mind uh, when the show was originally written and performed, but it worked so well that way. They had a um, a pre- little pre-show with videos uh, of, of news reports of, um, ec- of uh, ecological disasters, uh, you know, happening across the world. And then uh, <laughs> there was a little uh, thing about, uh elon musk as the president of the united states in 2070 so i don't you know hopefully that won't happen but we'll see uh well some 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 people will see uh, <laughs> yes uh uh so i thought that was so creative and uh you know i i appreciate a director like this who can really uh, especially in a in a educational context who can really look at a piece and 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 interpret it in an intelligent way and give a, a, a wonderful showcase to these young, extremely talented performers. All right. So uh, that was just one of two or possibly more <laughs> educational institutions you attended to see uh, shows recently. You also, I, I, I'm not sure if we teased it on air or off or mm-hmm. that you went to go see Pippin at NYU. So tell us about your Pippin experience. Well, this was at the uh, Frederick Lowe Theater where I mentioned uh, last week that I, uh, I used to have classes in that theater and I've even performed on that stage once or twice so it's always fun for me to go back there um very enjoyable production overall but uh not very well directed i would say uh fortunately they had some great talent and superb voices this fellow richie cardile was pippin and he uh was not the I suppose the physical type of Pippin that we normally see, but his voice uh, was really gorgeous. He sounded like uh, a friend of mine who, who I, with whom I attended mentioned at first, but I had been thinking the same thing. He sounded a lot like Ben Platt. And I mean that as a compliment, he had all the, all of the, the very good positive aspects of Ben Platt's singing voice. Um, so he was terrific. And, uh the cast in general was was very very talented the leading player nadia duncan just superb she um you kind of felt like she could have just done the role on broadway uh anytime now and uh everyone in general was great but um the the surprise was that the role of Catherine was played by someone named Aurelis Cruz, who turned out to be a vocal powerhouse in a role that where you don't often get that. 
Um, so that was that was a really really nice surprise. But the bad news here <laughs> was uh, again the very um, very slipshod direction. I would say there didn't seem to be any concept to the production. The costuming was all over the place, and that really worked against it. But um, the most annoying thing here again was the director's note. Okay, you ready? <laughs> In my musical theater history classes, I talk about my belief that theater needs to be that there needs to be a reason to do a revival of a show. Musicals are of their time. They are influenced by the social, political and historical contexts in which they are created. And in turn, they reflect those contexts back in the art, et cetera, et cetera. Well, I mean, I suppose that's true. But isn't that true of every work of art? Mm. Why does he sing single out musicals? Um, by the way, the person's name, the director choreographer is Barry Gellis, G-E-L-L-E-S. And then he goes on to say, so every choice that we made while creating Pippin was a choice that brought us closer to the type of theater making and world making we aspire to. Our production extricated the show from some of the influences that were dated and steeped in biases. Our practice has been anti-racist, feminist, queer inclusive, body positive, anti-ableist and consent based. Uh, et cetera, et cetera. Well, I didn't notice any changes or refocusing um, of the text or the the storytelling or the performances that pointed up any of that. I, I think whatever w- was in there has been in Pippin all along, as far as I noticed. I mean, the they did have a, a female leading player, but mm-hmm. that's been established for some time now. Mm-hmm. Uh, that was the biggest change in, in that regard. Um, so I, you know, I don't, I don't know. And by the way, this, uh, director's note is two pages long. So, you know, I mean, this, there's an opportunity for this, (laughs) for this professor at at NYU to go on and on and, and say all this stuff. And maybe if you read it, you'll, you'll feel differently about what he said, but I just don't get it. Well, you know, in terms of, uh, there has to be a reason for a revival. I'm reminded of Michael Butler, the original uh, producer of the Broadway edition of Hair in 1968, said when he revived it in 77. And that was, he said, I simply wanted to see it again. (laughs) (laughs) Granted, it it didn't go at that point in time. It only lasted a a bunch of weeks. But but nevertheless, uh, is it, you know, I want to see it again, a good enough reason to see anything? Uh, I I think so. Yeah. And I don't think, you know, I mean, I don't think things, shows necessarily have to be reinterpreted. Yeah, indeed. Uh, I'll I mean, that's that. fine. That's <laughs> yeah, fine. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I love new concepts when they work, sure. But um, business as usual is fine as well. You know, our, our faithful listener and trivia with Paul Witte um, posted on Facebook last night that he was seeing a production of Two Gentlemen of Verona. And I was thrilled for him. Paul really makes an effort to see every musical. He really has a checklist and what I, what he's seen when he has, and he'll travel hours to see whatever he needs to see. And you know, that's good enough for him, and it's good enough for me, too. I will go see something I haven't seen before. Um, so I'm very glad when there's a revival just for revival's sake. Right. And as you say, when a new interp- interpretation works, like sure. this, you're in town, that's terrific. Mm-hmm. But mm-hmm. I don't think there's anything wrong with just presenting a... Business as usual. Yeah. yeah. I agree. I agree. I, I I have to giggle because I, <laughs> I I laugh so hard when I see somebody's somebody's bio 
in a in a playbill that would go on. You know, this was director's notes, so it's different than a bio. Yeah. But sometimes you see a bio that will go on and on oh, yeah. and on yeah, and on. Yeah. And then you'll see something like, uh, you know, Nathan Lane, will, his bio will be like, Nathan has done a few shows. Mickey Rooney's for Sugar Babies was about four sentences long, maybe, maybe even three. So, uh, sure, you get to that point when you really become a legend and you can do that. So, yes. Uh, <laughs> um, uh, I, I was thinking actually... to myself... Yeah. Go on. Sorry. No, no. Which actually what? Well, uh, as far as I'm concerned, that that would lead us into our next topic of this Playbill article on audience misbehavior that had been pulled. Mm -hmm. And uh, then was, uh, well, no, was not restored, right? No, so far, we... We haven't seen it yet restored. Uh, we took a quick look for it as we started recording, and I don't see anything that resembles it. It's it's certainly not at the URL that it was at before. There's a, a dead page there. I haven't seen any republishing of a similar article on the Playbill website yet. So we should we should give some uh, background here for those who are yes. maybe not quite up to speed, is that um, Margaret Hall, a, writer, a really amazing writer over at, uh, at Playbill, uh, wrote this uh, article a couple of weeks back about uh, bad audience behavior, and it mysteriously disappeared from Playbill, and Playbill made no comment about it disappearing. It just, the URL went dead, and the page says, uh, nothing here for you to look at. Uh, look, search for something else. Uh, and then uh, this week, there was an article in the Daily Beast about uh, what happened to this article. The writer in the Daily Beast had uh, interviewed Phil Bursch, who's the owner of Playbill, and he said that he pulled the article and that it's going to be rewritten and come back. Uh, uh, but he didn't... I don't think in the article he mentioned a time frame, but he said it will be back. He expects he expects a rewritten version of the article to be back. But so far as Sunday morning, February 19th, we don't, I, I don't see it. Well, he said it'll be back, but this this was here here again another opportunity for someone just to go on and on. Uh, the article in uh, Deadline, the Daily Beast, uh, by Lachlan Cartwright, is, it begins. Playbill pulled an investigation into Broadway audience misbehavior from its website after the renowned theater mag CEO complained it was quote too salacious unquote, confider has learned. Well, um, salacious means having yeah. or conveying undue or inappropriate interest in sexual matters. Um, there were lots of horror stories in this art, this wonderful article by Margaret Hall, but nothing to do with sexual matters. It was about yeah. people starting fights in audiences and people using, you know, uh, talking too loudly and not behaving and and people getting drunk and then hitting people uh hitting other uh audience members and or house staff so um i mean it's a little surprising to me that somebody who's been a publisher of a magazine for 50 years doesn't know what salacious means but you know maybe he should have looked that up beforehand and also he goes on to say uh there's some kind of incredible comments in this article he says 
we want Phil Burch, I'm talking about now, we want people to go to the theater. This piece exaggerated the issue, in my opinion. I'm a numbers guy. I know numbers. I know that the overwhelming numbers of people at the theater are having an enjoyable time. Well, what what point does that make? That's like saying, well, because the overwhelming number of people in New York City are law-abiding citizens, we don't mm-hmm. report on crime. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I, I mean, just just blather, blather, blather. Hmm. So uh, uh, the article told the truth. I, I I'm always amazed when I go back to see a show during the run. Uh, how people are terribly misbehaving, and uh, we don't get that. Whatever you want to say about critics, they behave at a show. So when I go to a press performance, uh, mostly I don't Peter, see any of them. mostly, yeah. mostly. Yeah. You know, we had yeah. that article this week where the, uh, well, I guess it was the critic was well behaved. The uh, <laughs> the dance company, you know, did you hear the story about the dance company where? No. Uh, this, oh, uh, oh, the, oh, the, the, the dance, uh-huh. yeah, the dance critic, uh, uh, the dance the critic, panned. Dance critic. Yeah, the, dance critic. <laughs> was it a former yeah. dance critic? No, now he is. That's my point. No, 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 no. The, he's a former. He's a former choreographer now. Uh, so the critic, sorry, wrote a yes. wrote a bad review of of a dance piece, and the choreographer of the dance piece uh, went up to the critic and rubbed dog feces in her in her face, and uh, was. Uh, summarily dismissed from his dance company as, as he should be. Sure, but uh, certainly uh, that would never happen here in in <laughs> in, in the Broadway circles. <laughs> God, you know, you hear about uh, copycat crimes. You know, I hope that it doesn't mm. happen here. Um, so, yeah, uh, tough times, no question about that. But. All things considered, I have to say that I have seen what Margaret has talked about in that article. Mm, yes. Yeah, absolutely. I thought it was a wonderful article. As I said, I was surprised but thrilled because Playbill does not do normally do investigative reporting like that. And uh, apparently now they will not again. Uh, one can only imagine uh, the discussions that were held between Phil Bursch and Margaret Hall and also Deep Tran, the editor-in-chief of Playbill. But really, I mean, there's, here's another quote from Phil Bursch about this article. Speaking in terms of clickbait, it's fantastic, but it's not reflecting reality. It is reflecting a very thin layer of it. It's not up to my standards. All we are missing is headless body in topless bar, he said, mm-hmm. referencing the infamous New York Post right. headline. Right. What a terrible thing to say. <laughs> that this article didn't have a, a title like that, and it gave well-documented evidence of horrendous misbehavior by some people in Broadway audiences, and it examined the causes for that. I, I just... Well, I don't know how much of a theater goer Phil Bursch is, despite being um, the. Uh, <laughs> yeah. Well, that's a good question. The, the yeah. mocker of uh, Playbill. Um, if one goes into his office, one sees a lot of painting of horses. That seems to be where his real passion is. But my point is this that my guess, 
is that if he, when he goes to the theater, he's going to performances analogous to the ones I go to mm-hmm. uh, early in the run. Critics are there, so on and so forth. So he probably doesn't see this behavior firsthand just the way I don't at those performances. As I say, later in the run is when um, John Q theatergoer starts going. And indeed, some of those John Q theatergoers um, <laughs> shouldn't be in the theater. So it's possible that Phil Burst came from a place of, I've never seen this, so therefore it's not true. Yeah. But well, I do believe it is true. I, I want to. I, I, I'm just thinking about this, and I'm sort of a. I'm a numbers guy, like Bill, like Phil. Phil Bursch <laughs> is, is a numbers guy, and I'm an ideas guy, and I'm a creative guy. And I would have taken this article and partnered up with Chicago and said, "Jesus Christ, ain't there no decency left?" <laughs> and ran this article and did did it in conjunction with Chicago and used all the lyrics. <laughs> from class and uh and, and and they would have won the day they would have i mean fran and barry would have been happy all the league would have been happy everybody would have been happy but instead they chose the, the wrong path into uh into pulling this article and not republishing it and uh my goodness, uh, they should be very. You know, Phil Burr should be kissing the ground that he's got Deep Tran and Margaret Hall working for him. I'm a little surprised that it happened to begin with. Uh, that that Deep Tran and Margaret thought that it would pass muster with Phil Burr. But I'm, well, I don't. As I don't I think said, you hire Deep Tran and Margaret Hall. Uh, you know, right? Yes, but that's unless, that's what makes you know. it odd. Yeah, that that's that's the part I can't quite understand. <laughs> so I I don't think that we've uh, seen the curtain come down on this story. I think that we'll we'll see a second act or maybe even a third act of this. So we'll yeah. we'll see what happens. There's been a lot of stuff in the news. I wanted to get quick thoughts from you guys about some of the other things. Uh, Michael, are you sitting down? Yes. Are you re- are you relaxed? Are you in a good place? Are you thinking warm, nice puppy rainbow things? <laughs> <laughs> well, <laughs> I think I should. Yeah. What, what's okay. what are you about to tell me? Uh, Tim Rice says Aida's coming back. <laughs> <laughs> I want to make sure you're okay. You know. <laughs> I, now, did I did I read about this? Uh, uh, so Tim Rice says that Chess is coming back, and Aida's in in discussions right now for. Uh, about next uh, next fall, so uh, mm-hmm. well, uh, so I uh, we, I'll, I'll, be, I'll I'll go to see one of them. <laughs> okay, okay, that that's fair. That's fair. Very you know. happily. <laughs> so we'll have a, a a chess and Aida playing in rep, maybe. Mm-hmm. You know, <laughs> what's the last show that played in rep on on Broadway? The Angels in America, or what played in rep? I guess so. Um... So, hmm. I, or has there been do. a musical that ever played in rep? Huh, I mean, I don't that, know. I guess I maybe it's easier to do a play in rep, but I, I don't know if, if that's true or not. Just seems very like hard. It. So can right. we assume this will be the same production of chess with, uh, with the new book that was recently seen in concert? They... Uh, they uh, they they weren't uh, the article in Broadway World was not committing to which book or anything like that, and it was basically um, Tim uh, Tim Rice uh, had made a statement 
and they extrapolated the article from the statement. So they didn't get to ask him follow-up questions that I know of. Oh, okay. Uh, so Greg is saying Harry Potter runs in rep, or ran in rep before it was the shorter version. That's oh, true. Oh, yes. Excellent point. Yeah. Uh, Seawall the Life ran in rep. That's right. Rob Johnson adds Seawall the Life uh, ran in rep. And then Is This a Room? Did that run in rep or did that run in Is This a Room and the other, yeah, well, the other the, play? It was the other one. Yeah. That's right. Mm. Yeah. Well, I can't so maybe remember. Maybe more that. than I can think of it. Seawall of Life was one one play on set, on different plays on different nights. Is that right? Because that's what rep oh, means. Yeah, Dana H. Seawall, uh, Julie Green H. Dana H. So, uh, so Seawall of Life was that two different plays in one night? I, I think thought so. Yeah. yeah, that's what yeah. I remember. Yeah, that's not yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh, oh, well, that's right, Rob Johnson. It's rep if you count uh, time as not being. A uh, thing. <laughs> so, uh, time is a thing here for the new Ohio Theater. Yeah. So the new, no. new Ohio Theater is closing its doors. Yes. This August. Well, yes and no. I mean, they do claim yeah. that um, somebody might come in and uh, it, it's a theater space that may very well see uh, another company take over. But the company we know is uh, New Ohio is um, getting out of there on, on August 31st. So, yeah. Uh, very sad. Sure. Very sad. And then a follow-up to something we talked about a few weeks back. Drew uh, Jamson and the Ambassador Theater Group are going to merge, uh, which is, you know, uh, people are saying that the article, was it Cindy Adams that had the article? I, I can't remember who it was. I think that, so, yeah. Uh, Initially, Cindy Adams right. Yeah. talked about uh, Ambassador buying out Drew Jamson. Uh, you know, th- this... Uh, this uh, release from the two organizations. Uh, let me tell you a little truth in business is there's no such thing as a merger. You know, it's always oh, one company buying another. So and one company, yeah, one company is going to have more control over than the other company. And I'd imagine that, that this is uh, what's happening. Ambassador's really buying Jujamson. Uh, we will have to wait to see because it's a multi-year plan. Uh, so we're not going to have any answers to this right now, but we have an article from the New York Times that I'll link to in the show notes if you're interested in reading more about that. But uh, it certainly makes sense for Ambassador to get a stronger foothold here in New York, where uh, Ambassador Theater Group is a very strong organization on the West End and now has a has a stake to claim of seven theaters here in the U.S., so makes them a real big player. So that's about it for today. Before we get on to our trivia and our musical moment, I want to remind everybody that you can subscribe to these broadcasts by going to the front page of BroadwayRadio.com. There's a subscribe link. That way, each and every time we have a new episode of This Week on Broadway, it'll be automatically downloaded to Apple Podcasts for you. Of course, you don't have to listen to Apple Podcasts. There's many ways to get us. You can uh, subscribe to us on Patreon and support Broadway Radio. Patreon listeners get uh, This Week on Broadway on Sunday afternoon before it's released to the general public on Sunday evening, as well as getting a chance to listen to us live on Sunday morning as we record, plus a handful of bonus episodes that you will get, like uh, like uh, Jan Simpson's All the Drama uh, a week ahead of time, and various different things that Matt and Ashley and Grace put out in the feed for 
Patreon. You can listen to us on Spotify, iHeartRadio, TuneIn, Stitcher, Google Play, anywhere that you can listen to finer podcasts. You'll find Broadway Radio's offerings. Contact information for Peter, for Michael, and for me can be found in the show notes at broadwayradio.com, as well as links to some of the things we've talked about today. So, Peter, do we have an answer to last week's trivia question? In 2022, as he was going to audition in hopes for landing a certain role in an upcoming Broadway revival, this performer, with a Roman numeral after his name, might well have been singing a famous song from a famous 1920s musical. Who is he? What's the revival? What song would have been apt for him to sing? What musical did it come from? Well, it would have been McKinley Belcher III on his way to audition for Happy <laughs> in last year's Death of a Salesman, because he might have sung to himself a song from the 1920s, No, No, Nanette, I Want to Be Happy. Yeah, <laughs> and indeed, he became just that. Last week, I told you that Tony Janicki finished six minutes ahead of Paul Witte. In fact, he did again, but only after the remarkable Steve Bell got it seconds after I gave the question and Josh Israel quickly followed. Uh, but Tony only got it after a previous guess. Yes, he first correctly identified Mr. Belcher, but he assumed the song was one from the 1929 nautical musical, Hit the Deck. The song, Sometimes I'm Happy. No, that's what Mr. Belcher might have sung after he got the part. Sometimes <laughs> I'm happy, but not before. Uh, Stella, it was nice to hear someone mention Hit the Deck, which I only tend to mention when I'm playing poker. Other players say cut the cards, but I always say hit the deck. Anyway, after those four, we had Brigadoo, Jeff Alenga, and Juliet Green. This week's question. This performer had a mere walk-on in a musical for which she won a Tony. A mere walk-on. Who is she? What's the musical? And explain about that walk-on. All right. If you can explain about that walk-on, email us at trivia at broadwayradio.com. We'll let you know if you're, if you're on the right track. So, Michael, what do we have in this week's musical moment? Well, that production of Pippin at NYU, which, by the way, I, I'm not sure if I mentioned it, was the Steinhardt School at um, I really appreciated it on a musical level, aside from whatever issues I may have had with the direction and the costuming, et cetera. And so that sent me back to the original cast album, which uh, is, a, of course, has been a favorite of mine for 51 years now. Uh, and here's an interesting tidbit about that album, which comes from a reliable source. So I'm not 100% sure it's true, but it sounds like it might be. Um, I'm told that that recording, um, that it, of course, it features the, the Broadway leads, but I'm told that the ensemble were jobbed in uh, and that they were singers uh, as opposed to the people who actually played the ensemble in the show who were primarily dancers. Uh, so maybe maybe that is true. I mean, the, the recording is on the Motown label and it's produced very much as a more like a pop recording than a cast album. Um, so if anyone knows, um, has any evidence uh, about that, this fact, uh, maybe they can tell us, or maybe I'll, maybe I'll write to Stephen Schwartz and see if he'll tell well, us. Yeah, John is a listener. John, he <laughs> touch right. base with us. Oh, yeah. Well, <laughs> yes. I mean, that's another person who could tell us. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> uh, maybe I should go to John Rubenstein. Yeah. yeah. yeah um, exactly. So anyway, our, our music uh, this week, this 
weekend this Sunday is two selections from Pip and the uh, both featuring uh, people who have been guests on our podcasts, uh, not together, but separately. The opening number, Magic to Do, featuring Ben Vereen. And uh, one of my favorite songs from the score uh, is our closer, Morning Glow, uh, with John Rubenstein singing the lead. All right. So on behalf of Michael Portantier and Peter Felicia, this is James Marino saying thanks so much for listening to Broadway Videos This Week on Broadway. Bye-bye. Bye. Bye. Bye.